Welcome to the show. I'm Greg McEwen, and I'm your host for the What's Essential podcast. There are lots of shows on how to improve, on how to become successful, but there is only one on what to do once you are. This is essential because success can be a catalyst for failure, especially if it leads to the undisciplined pursuit of more. This show is about how to become successful at success. It's for high performers who are on the edge of exhaustion, solving problems completely before they even arise. It's about turning tedious tasks into joyful rituals. It's about simplifying your processes and making your most essential activities the easiest ones. So if you're a driven, hardworking, productive person who is running out of space but still wants to make a higher contribution effortlessly, the What's Essential podcast is designed especially for you. So let's begin. Kim Scott is such an honor to have, the author of Just Work, uh, but also uh, before that, the superb Radical Candor, uh, CEO coach to Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, all the rest of it, uh, but also somebody just on the cutting edge of what's really going on, on the, the conversations that need to happen. Welcome to the What's Essential podcast, Kim. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Excited to have this conversation. Uh, well, it's nice. It's nice for you to say that. I feel like you and I have crossed paths in like many ways without really <laughs> having the excuse to to be in the same room when it happened until now. So it's fun for me to fun for me to to be here. Tell me this: What is the radical conversation that people need to have right now? At this moment of things are starting to open up, but people are feeling anxious and there's a, sort of a pressure to get back physically to work. Like in this moment, in this environment, what do leaders need to be doing? You know, this is a tricky moment and it's a moment that is full of opportunity. I think it's a moment in history where people are more open to creating the kind of workplace where we can all just work, that, that is optimized for collaboration, not coercion, that is, that is optimized for respect, sort of where we respect one another instead of demanding conformity. And yet it's also a moment where, a dangerous moment, I think, frankly, because so many, as we were in quarantine all over the world, so many painful things happened to so many different people that it's tempting to just shut down. And so let's not shut down. Let's stay open and use this opportunity to, to just work, just in the ju justice sense mm -hmm. of the word mm -hmm. and just in the sense of let's just get stuff done. Yes, for, sh for sure. I, there's a lot of stuff that needs fixing. I love that. I feel like that's a very clever play on words with just work that you put together <laughs> there. The, you, what you just said about, about you know, reminds me of something my wife Anna just sent to me. Um, this, this is the phrase. Talking is the most dangerous thing people will do. <laughs> you know what? I, I, so it is dangerous to talk, but silence, I would say, is the most dangerous thing that people do, not talking. I, I agree with you. The, the, the gist of what the, the, this 
you know, this, this article that Anna sent me is really saying is that we have to make it safe for people to talk because otherwise they'll do just what you said, which is they go silent. And for sure, that's the more dangerous thing for a team dynamic, for society as a whole, is to have people that just feel like they can't speak up, can't be heard. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's the same there, but in the U.S. over the last, you know, call it 60 years, there's been this sort of conventional wisdom that there's three things we don't talk about at work, race, religion, and politics. And I think that is how we got where we are. We've got to start talking about these things, uh, you know, not just not just at work, but but if, if we have a lot of little conversations we we that is how we that is how we come to a shared understanding of how we can best collaborate because this is this is humanity's superpower is collaboration and if we can't talk we can't collaborate which is not to say we always have to agree with one another i think there's enormous the, a lot of creativity comes from difference and disagreement and so that's the you know we're not trying to eliminate difference and disagreement we're trying to embrace it just so i mean we're not talking about uniformity uh but we what a leap forward it would be if you could have deep mutual understanding yeah yeah and, and compassion and and sort of i'm going to read you a quote from audre lord difference must be not merely tolerated but seen as a fund of necessary polarities between which our creativity can spark only then does the necessity for interdependency become unthreatening i love that 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 is such a such a a good quote i um it, it makes me think of, of of a quote that I just came across. I was reading in this book. It says, "Your personal experiences with money make up maybe zero point zero 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 one percent of what's happened in the world, but maybe eighty percent of how you think the world works." So, equally smart people can disagree about how and why recessions happen, how you should invest your money, what you should prioritize, how much risk you should take, and so on. I just thought that was a, a great description of, you know, we, we have experienced so little of the world's experiences, and yet we often think, well, no, we've got some to learn, but we basically understand how the world works. <laughs> There's a yeah. humility in suddenly discovering, oh, I, I, I just don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These are these are such important words. I don't know, and uh, too rarely, too rarely used. What have you learned now, both from the coaching work that you've done, uh, writing these two books? What have you? What is your? Give me like three practical things that people can do from all the research to. to to make it easier to have conversations around the things that really matter. Yeah. So I think that the the thing that has been most helpful to me, so we'll see, you can tell me if it's helpful to others, is learning to distinguish between bias, prejudice, and bullying and learning what to say in the face of each. I mean, I, I'm willing to bet that every single person listening right now has had, not just in their career, but in the last week, 
a moment in a meeting that was so awful that they had no idea what to say. And if we can, and so they said nothing, as I have done, as probably you have done, Greg, too often. And I think we have this default to silence in the face of, in the face of things that are obviously problematic, but we don't know what to say about them. And so if we can learn what to say when we don't know what to say, then I think it'll help. So here's, here's my advice. If you think what just happened in that awful moment was bias, respond with an I statement. I don't think you meant that the way it sounded, or I don't think you're going to take me seriously when you call me honey or whatever it is. And, and use that I statement, whether the, what was said was directed at you or whether you're the upstander, whether you just observed it. Now, if you think what happened was prejudice, and very often we like to imagine everything is about unconscious bias, like the person didn't really mean it, but sometimes people really do mean what they say. They have a very conscious prejudiced belief. So how do you deal with that? Try starting with the word it. So It is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair. So you can appeal to common sense with your it statement, or you can appeal to the law, it is illegal not to hire women, or you can say it is an HR violation. So an it statement sort of is your line in the sand between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want and another person's freedom not to have that belief imposed upon them. And easy to say, hard to do. But try just starting with the word it and then notice what comes out of your mouth next. Sometimes it's just about momentum. It's about starting by saying something. Now, other times it's bullying that is presenting itself. And unlike an I, if an I statement sort of invites someone in to understand things from your perspective, a you statement, which is how you respond to bullying, pushes them away because you don't want to invite someone who's meaning you that I'm going to define bullying as being mean, right? So if bias is not meaning it, prejudice is meaning it, bullying is being mean. And when someone is being mean, you don't want to invite them in closer necessarily. My daughter explained this to me when she was in third grade and she was getting bullied. And I said to her, I was sort of advising her to use an I statement. I feel sad. Tell this little child, you know, I feel sad when you, and my daughter banged her fist on the table. And she said, you know what? He's trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell him he succeeded? (laughs) And I Hmm. thought, gosh, you know, that's a good point. Hmm. So, so try, and, and you don't have to be right about what it is. It may not be clear whether it's bias, prejudice, or bullying, but if your gut tells you it's bias, Say the word I, and then notice what comes out of your mouth next. If you think it's prejudice, say the word it, and then notice what comes out of your mouth next. And if you think it is bullying, say the word you. And if, if, you know, if, if something like you can't talk to me like that feels like it might escalate the situation, you can use a you question. What's going on for you here? Because very often someone who engages in bullying is not, you know, you don't want to hang a label around their neck, but something's going on for them that they're behaving that way in that moment. I really like those three specific behavioral uh, prompts. I had an odd situation the other day where I was silent and wished I hadn't been. Let me give you the scenario and you tell me what I should have done. Okay. So I have the world's most entertaining hairdresser. Mm -hmm. I love my conversations with her. 
Uh-huh. Well, certainly for months, she didn't even know I was a writer, anything. I just, it was just so fun to be entertained by her story after story of all right. crazy things. Um, this last time, uh, I was talking to her and she started telling me stories about what it has been like. She's run this store for 25 years and some of the experience she's had as a woman running this establishment. And some of the crazy things that she has had men do to her or mm-hmm. proposition her with. And I, I mean, I just, first of all, I said it to her. I said, everything you have just told me is appalling. It, and she was like, oh, well, thank yeah. you for saying that. And I'm like, I, I'm like, I don't even understand how, like, this isn't the world I live in, but this has been a reality for you for all these years. While we are talking about this, gentleman comes in kind of rough looking guy, big jacket. He's he's carrying a cake and he just he sort of marches in confidently in, into the hairdressing you know area. And as he's walking past the hairdresser, he just kind of pinches her kind of on, on her side, like in, oh, in a kind of very friendly yeah. way, but in a weird yeah. way too. And she just like looks up in the mirror and I'm like, oh, I guess she doesn't know this person that doesn't feel comfortable in this moment and he walks past puts the cake down walks back through does exactly the same thing on the way out and leaves oh. right and and i'm like you know like at first when he's coming i'm like well i'm sure i mean he's bringing a cake i mean and the way she said hi to him i thought oh she must know him she he is a customer to her but he she's not expecting the cake nothing it's the most peculiar interaction and I'm like, I mean, she is in the middle yeah. of telling me this, all her experience. <laughs> and then this guy acts this way and I'm silent. I didn't say one word to him, not on the way in or the way out. I mean, the whole thing took, you know, 10 seconds, but still I just thought she's just been violated. It's clearly wrong. I, I said nothing. What should I have said in that situation? This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system. Whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic, which is your AI powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. So first, let me say, I'm not going to should all over you uh, because it, I, I want you to give yourself a little bit of compassion because it is so hard to know how to respond in the moment. One of the reasons why I wrote this book is sort of in homage to all the people who have been upstanders throughout my career for me. For all the bad experiences that I've had, I've had a lot of great ones with a lot of great people. And so I think it is... It's really important to to learn how to be an upstander because I think one of the things that happens to all of us when we see something like that happen and we don't do anything, now we have been slimed by someone else's bad behavior. Like you have become a victim to that as well. And so I think you've got to, first of all, like be gentle with yourself. One of the most useful things that I read in the course of of doing research for Just Work was uh, there's an organization called Hollaback, and Hollaback writes about the five Ds. How can you be a good upstander? And one of the things that you can do is just to go up to the person who was harmed by that behavior afterwards and say, gosh, I'm sorry. And you did that. Just the fact that you looked, that she was able to look at you in the mirror and you all were just able to share this moment is very helpful because if you hadn't been willing to talk to her and to dispel the gaslighting, because he, he was behaving as though this were normal behavior. And that is one of the things that is the worst about that kind of behavior is that when someone comes up and pinches you and you sort of think, what, what was that? Early in my career, I had an experience where I got groped on the subway on the way into work and I was shaken by the experience. And I, I talked to a colleague of mine at work, a man, and he just sort of rolled his eyes and he was like, it happens, get used to it. And his response, that, like that is not the response you gave to her. You were like, yeah, that was not right. His response to me was, was almost worse than getting groped because getting groped, I was able to sort of put that as an aberration. But then when he normalized the behavior, now I feel gaslit. Now I felt like, oh, I, you know, why, do, why can't I deal with it? I shouldn't have to deal with that, obviously. But that was how he left me feel. So you did, you did one of the important things that upstanders can do. One. Now, there's other things that upstanders can do when, when you notice something like that. So sometimes you can confront the person directly. Uh, but th- there are times when you may not feel comfortable, you may not feel safe, and upstanders are such an important part of the solution to this problem. I don't want to put upstanders in harm's way. So a, a direct confrontation would use like the you statement. You cannot just walk in and, pun- and, and pinch this, this woman. That is not okay. So, so that's something you could say, but if you don't feel safe saying it, it's okay. Another thing that you can do is you can dis- you can create a distraction. So there's a there's a story I read about a man who interrupted a sexual assault on the subway by spilling his potato chips. He was called Snack Man. 
he didn't feel safe confronting this woman's attacker directly, but by spilling his potato chips, he caused a distraction and she was able to get away. Uh, so spill your coffee, you know, <laughs> it's, it's okay to, to take that route. Don't beat yourself up. Another thing you can do is you can delegate. If there was somebody else, if there had been a fourth person and, you know, sort of catch that person's eye, uh, there's strength in numbers. And that is one of the strengths that upstanders have is there's often a lot of them. And so if you can get people together to say, you cannot behave that way, that's useful. Another thing you can do is you can either film it or, or you can document in some way what's going on. And then you want to make sure that you talk to the person harmed. You, you, you wouldn't want to like put that up on social media without her permission. But, uh, but so those are the sort of five Ds of things you can do as, as an upstander. And, and just to summarize the, the five Ds, what are they? There's direct. You can confront the person who's causing harm directly. You can delay, you can talk to the victim or to the person harmed later. You can delegate, that means talk to someone else who is, uh, who is present or catch someone else's eye or go get the manager, whatever. You can ask someone else to intervene. You can distract, that's like snack man throwing his potato chips, or you can document. So those are the five Ds. And Hollaback, I'll send you the link. It's really a, a great organization. I, I stole that from them. So, I know that a lot of people, when I talk to them about you know, the importance of prioritization, pursuing what's essential in their lives, uh, you know, the, one of their first questions back to me is, that's fine, but prioritization isn't a singular you know, individual sport. Yeah. It's a collective and I completely agree with them. But then they want to know, okay, well, how do you raise that subject? How can you talk to someone higher up in the hierarchy about prioritization? Either because you think, you know, what you're doing is more important than what they're asking you to do. That's sort of scenario one. Or scenario two is that they, um, they they aren't clear about their prioritization. They're they're all over the place. It's a different thing every day, or it's just vague for them. And so they want to know how to safely have that conversation. Uh, across your research, what what have you uh, learned about how you know what someone can say in that situation? I don't know if this is from research as much as just from personal experience, mm -hmm. but one of the things that has been most helpful for me in my career when I, when I feel like I'm being pulled in too many different directions is to create a what I call a proactive forbearance list. And this is basically a do not do list. Mm -hmm. And there was, there was one point in my career where I was really, I was doing too many things and I was doing none of them very well. And so I was talking to my boss about this and I said, look, here's what I'm going to do. Here are the three things that I'm working on and every, and, and it's not going to change much week to week. Like these are the three big things. And in order to do these three big things, well, there's a million things I'm not going to do. And every week I'm going to tell you about the things I decided not to do. And I want you to help me feel good about not, not doing those things. And she agreed, and it really was very helpful in terms of, of prioritizing. I think that 
The, the other thing that I have found that is really helpful in terms of making sure that I have time to do the things that are important to me is to block time in my calendar for them. I think very often we use our calendar as the way to track collaborative, like meetings and stuff like that. And if you're not careful, pretty soon your whole calendar gets consumed by meetings and collaborative tasks. And the only time you have to do work that you need to do alone is at night when you should be sleeping or sort of having dinner with your family or whatever, or friends. Like when I write, I put blocks in my calendar and I hold them inviolable. And otherwise I would never get any writing done. Mm, I love both of those. And I love the language that you used in communicating with your boss. Okay, here are the three things. As a result, there'll be lots of things I can't do. I, to help me. I want you to help me feel good about that. That that gives yeah. a, a clear instruction <laughs> that you're not you're not just looking for sort of permission. You actually need them to encourage you to be focused on what's essential. I needed her to cheer me on uh, for not doing those things. What language beyond what you've already shared have you found useful in being able to negotiate a no? I think one of the most important things is to get uh, uh, on the same side of the table in terms of priorities. So, for example, uh, there's there was a, a, a woman I worked with who was in marketing, and the company had launched a new product. And, and so she was not going to be able to, and she got no more new resources to launch this new product. And so she was not going to be able to do the usual Christmas uh, holiday sort of marketing around some of the old products. And she realized that what she needed to do is to go to those teams early uh, a no early is way better than a no late. And to, and to say, look, here are the priorities that I've been given from, from the executives. Uh, you know, I have to put all my resources against this new product. And therefore, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to be doing what I usually do for you around the holiday marketing campaigns. And I'm telling you this now so that you have time to figure out what you're going to do about it. And they were, they were pissed, obviously, but they would have been way more angry if she had waited until November to tell them. So she told them this in the summer. And, uh, and that really matters. A no early is way better uh, than, than a, oh, I'm not going to do that at the last minute. In Radical Candor, I write about this. There's, there's a great tool that one of my coaches, when I worked at Google, uh, gave us, which is infinite damage to your relationship. So if you look at, if time is on one dimension, uh, on, on the horizontal axis, and the time at which your deliverable is due, and on the vertical axis is damage to your relationship, the closer to the date at which this thing is due that you say, no, I'm not going to do it, the more damage to your relationship. And if you tell them the day after it was due, you, you approach infinite damage to the relationship. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, that's that's really terrific. Um, I, I I I love that. Let me ask you this question: what What question, if there is one, were you dreading being asked by me or anyone else in an interview? I think when I was writing Just Work, I felt like the, the, the question looming over my head was, do I, as a white woman, have the right to write this book? Mm-hmm. Because it's hard for me to say that I've experienced injustice. I mean, it, it, by and large in life, uh, I've gotten more than my fair share of the good things that work and life have to offer. And I've gotten those things as a result of systemic injustice. And so given that I'm part of the problem as much as part of the solution, do I even have the right to write this book? So mm. I think that is, I, I don't know that I dread getting that question, but I, but I think that is a question that is hard for me to answer. I mean, I, I tried really, I worked really hard in the book to make sure that I was that I was taking into account different points of view, the point of view of the leader and what leaders can do to prevent workplace injustice, the point of view of the upstander, as we talked about just just a few minutes ago, and and how upstanders can intervene when they observe workplace injustice, the point of view of the person harmed, which which I have been, I mean, I I have been harmed as a woman in the workplace. Mm. And and also what can we do when we are the person who causes harm? which we all are, I would argue, from time to time. All of us, at the very least, express bias and, and cause harm in other ways. And so how can we learn to be able to recognize the harm that we do to others so that we can fix it? Uh, you can't fix problems you refuse to notice. And, and that, but it's, I mean, it was hard for me to think of myself as a victim. It was even harder for me to think of myself as a perpetrator in writing this book. But I, I, I felt like I have inhabited both roles and, uh, and I really tried to, to write from both perspectives. Yeah, I can, I can hear that, the tension inherent in the project, right? If, you, if you're going to embark on this project, it sort of comes with the territory that, that uh, am, am I, Am I the right voice? Is is somebody going to feel that somehow it's a it's a privileged thing to do to just presumptuous to even do this? I I can imagine that tension, um, but but I also think there's I, I can also see why you will have still proceeded because you say well uh, I this is this is the part I can play. Yeah, and also as we talked before, like silence is not the answer. So. Uh, so I hope that it helps people, and I tried to write it in such a way that it helps people. And and I tried to be conscious of what Sarah Kuntz told me. The problem here is that, Kim, that people will listen to you. So I tried, you know, to, with this project, above all, do no harm. Yeah, and, and to be responsible. Uh, it, that That's an important thing as, 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 a, as a career in writing continues. The my experience is that the barriers to entry are reduced. Yeah. It's, it's, there's, there's less people telling you, you can't write that. You can't say that. You, you know, like the, the people, 
the, the doors are more easily opened. Uh, yes. Not, I don't want to overstate how easy it is, but I, I just recognize that the responsibility grows, you know, and, and you've taken that – that's what you're saying. I've taken the responsibility seriously uh, in, in, in taking on this, this new writing project. Yeah, I tried. I, I, and I'm sure I failed. And, and I think I'm open to feedback from folks about where I failed. And uh, in fact, I think the, the subtitle is a failure, and I think we're going to change it. The subtitle <laughs> on, on the UK version, the subtitle of Just Work is Get It Done Fast and Fair. In the US, the subtitle is Get Shit Done Fast and Fair. And I think I was playing too much into this Silicon Valley productivity sort of business. And I, I think we're going we're gonna to change it. So if anybody has some feedback on what the new subtitle ought to be, let me know. I love that. I love the request for the feedback. I love the, the willingness to look at it. I also think it's one of the, it's one of the worst things about being an author. And there's 99 good things. Writing allows us to connect to one another uh, and to collaborate and to respect one another in, in different ways than in-person communication does, and, and in ways that are not always inferior <laughs> to in-person communication. Well, and it opens up the possibility of intergenerational communication and collaboration. And wisdom, yeah. What a, to me, this is a hugely driving force. Uh, I, when I wrote Essentialism, I, I didn't have an aspiration, oh, I'm going to write 20 books in 20 years or whatever. I was yeah. like, I just want to write one book that lasts. Yeah. Uh, can, can I do that? And, 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 and the same now with Effortless. And I... Yeah, I can't share this without it sounding presumptuous, um, but I have an author friend who happened to read the most recent book, and he sent me the loveliest note. Uh, and one of the things he said at the end of the note is he said, um, you've, you've written another book that will outlive us all. Yeah. Now, whether I have or not, that's just a nice opinion <laughs> I think from you him. Have. But the but the point is is that is that that is such a beautiful sentiment. The idea we can write something, you know, we don't last forever. You know, we, we our life, our time on Earth is you know, really short yeah. uh, compared to almost anything. Um, but but the idea that we could write something that could outlive us, not for the sake of being remembered, but just for the sense of residual impact to make a difference. And, uh, and so I thank you, Kim, for taking, you know, precious life blood to write, to try to craft ideas, to try to take that shell from the ocean, uh, to be able to help make a difference. Uh, I, I know um, I'm, I'm confident that Just Work will as well. I have personally seen radical candor uh, in companies I've worked with where people uh, you have, have uh, utilizing it and it's naming things for them and it's helping them to have language uh, and, and conversations that otherwise they, they, they wouldn't have. And, uh, and it really is a, a pleasure uh, to have you on the What's Essential podcast today. Thank you, Kim. Well, and thank you, Greg. Your, your books are incredibly meaningful and it is, it's a labor of love to write these books. Uh, and so thank you for, for doing that labor. Kim, where should people find you right now? What is there something specific you would like to point them to? That's uh, you know, tools, assets, anything. 
Sure. Check out justworktogether.com. That's our website where we share the framework and, uh, and help, we help leaders figure out how to roll these ideas out in their organizations. And we also help individuals figure out how they can speak truth to power without blowing up their careers. So <laughs> that's, so. that's what it is. That's exactly the issue that people are trying to get with. <laughs> yes. Just, just work together.com. You're going to learn how to, there were a few things there, but you're going to learn how to speak truth to power without blowing up your careers. Everybody wants that. Uh, thank you again. Thank you so much, Greg. Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. It's been amazing to see what's happened already with this show. The show has become, in fact, the top 3% of podcasts globally within just the first five months of its launch. And that's because of you. You have made this special. And I want to end, as I always do, reminding you that if you don't do anything else, just ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.